Pod Clubhouse. Yes, it's a good day for singing a song, and it's a good day. Welcome to Dreamland, the Hollywood podcast. This is Caroline. This is Mike. Tonight we're talking about episode four of Hollywood, Screen Tests. It was written by Ian Brennan, Ryan Murphy, and Janet Mock, who also directed this episode. How are you doing, Caroline? I'm doing good. How are you? Good. <laughs> a lot of uh, forward momentum here. You know, we got to the screen test that we've been hearing about for two episodes now. We finally got to see it tonight. Right. The elusive screen test that everyone's being annoying at lunch tables about. We finally get to see. Were you surprised that we actually saw a screen test more than one or that they actually devoted an entire episode to screen tests? At the start of this episode, I wouldn't have predicted it played out the way it did from the radicalization of Archie to getting to see the very screen tests to just just everything the way it played out really kind of surprised me but in a good way i feel the same exact way i think that i saw different sides of every single character that really felt like they grew i want to start with ace amberg and talk about whether or not you think he is a pragmatic guy or just a scumbag i think he is a pragmatic piece of shit <laughs> i love that he is a business guy he is running a massive studio he, he is running you know, the equivalent of MGM in the real world at this time. His morality is in question for sure, but a lot of what he was talking about in this episode business-wise is reflective of what the actual situation was. He needs to make pictures that are going to sell, right? Isn't, is not that Absolutely. fair to say? Absolutely. And you, you want to know what sells, Mike? Tits, swords, and sandals, boy with dog, dog dying optional. These are the selling points of the time. The fact that they have him always eating adds an extra layer of grossness for Ace for me that I just feel like, well done. Well done, Hollywood. A big fat man gobbling stuff down turns my stomach every time. I'm putting that in the scumbag pile, actually, that you'd be like snarfing on your food at your desk at a meeting. That feels gross. I think laughing at the slaughter of Shawnee Indians is also probably questionable and probably makes you a piece of shit too. We're finding that under scumbag. <laughs> Do you feel like that under the idea that Dick and Ellen are sitting there trying to say like, look, we're cool with doing popular pictures and we completely get that. We want to do that. But, you know, there needs to be ones of substance as well. Seems fair to me. Yes. Uh, for sure. I think you hear a lot of times, especially about directors who attach to studios, uh, you'll hear a lot of one for them, one for me kind of filmmaking where the director will make a movie that the studio wants them to make. And the understanding is I'll make your tits and sword and sandal picture, but then you have to let me make the picture that I want to make, that that kind of quid pro quo. And I, I feel like that's what the pitch was that Dick was trying to say to Ace. I'll make all of these idiotic movies for you, but you got to let me make this movie. And you know what? Ace goes for it. Yeah, I was so happy that Peg actually got greenlit. That was awesome. Now we had a 400K ask and only a 75K given. However, I feel like they're they're a creative bunch and they're going to stretch their dollars using our contract players and whatnot, maybe not big stars. I think they're going to be able to do it. What do you think? Well, I think it's less important now because with Ace being out of the way and Avis having controlling the purse strings, one of the things that she was specifically denoted was budgets. And so I think she will be much more open to uh, the purse strings being a little bit looser than Ace seemed 
inclined to be. I was still happy that Ace went for it because it made me give him a little point on the more pragmatic side and the more fair side of it versus pure scumbag tits, swords, and sandals and dogs dying. So I'm going to give him a half point on that. How freaked out were you when he's walking by the door of that conference room and he sees Archie, Camille, and Ray in there working on stuff and he bursts in? What did you think was going to go on down in that moment? His who are you was a real Archie Bunker moment for me and actually made me laugh out loud. And, and you made the great comment that Rob Reiner doing any kind of Archie Bunkerness is just great irony and, and really, really delicious to watch. So I laughed initially, but we had been waiting for this, right? I mean, Archie, we knew Archie had not revealed his race when he submitted the picture. And, and Dick Samuels, obviously not too much of a problem with it since he's had his Oz moment. But Ace definitely has been a question mark. But he didn't strike me as someone who would be particularly racially enlightened, personally or for business reasons. I think that he represented to me the CEO of a biz that has to walk the line of his own personal things that maybe he would like to do and all of the rules, laws, regulations that just have to be adhered to. So he doesn't get to play fast and loose. He doesn't get to have pet projects all the time. He also has to do that other part. He's got a bottom line. He's got investors. He's got all kinds of things. It's a studios up there, not Ellen and Dick, as he so clearly points out. So he has to do right concerning everything. And a big one that comes up is this Hayes Code. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. This takes me to my favorite segment of these Hollywood podcasts is the learn the lingo. So the Hayes Code was a real thing that existed for over 30 years in Hollywood. Coming up out of the flapper 20s and the Puritan nature of this country, there was a big backlash against Hollywood in the late 20s of its lewd behavior, its depictions on screen, its running afoul of public morality. Did they have very clear standards in terms of like, like, was it easy to interpret or was it something that like every studio had had to figure out or did they have some pretty clear principles? Well, there was an official code passed. It had a, a, a movement that grew out of standards written by the Catholic community who was leading the charge in the public outcry against Hollywood. Oh, you Catholics. But it was eventually codified and adopted and, and it's called the Hayes Code because uh, it was presented and passed by Will Hayes. He was the head of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, which is the forerunner of what we today call the Motion Pictures Association of America. So as the president of that, his name gets attached to it, but it was actually, and this is a mouthful, this is the actual name of the, of the rules. It was called the Code to Govern the Making of Talking, Synchronized, and Silent Motion Pictures. Huh. That was the formal name of the code, it suggested a list of things you cannot do and things that you have to be careful how you do as it comes to what's on the screen in motion pictures. Okay, so break it down for us, Mike, because I want to understand what movies were affected by this and exactly how it started to shape what films they did and how they went about it. So there were three general principles that guided how Hollywood was to self-govern itself, because that was the idea here, right? The idea was Hollywood is going to live by the self-governing code. The other option being that Congress was going to get involved and pass actual censorship laws. No. So Hollywood adopted these rules to avoid actual censorship rules. Okay. Which makes sense, right? Uh, yeah. So the general principles that govern the Hayes Code was, one, 
it prohibited a movie from, quote unquote, lowering the moral standards of those who see it. All right. You can't corrupt America's youth or America in any way. Wow. OK, that's not all that specific. So, OK, that's going to be definitely up for interpretation. Well, it is also very interesting because you think back to Ernie's comments when he's springing Jack from jail. He talks about how Hollywood is built by hypocrites who, who put forward this view of America that's not real. Well, the Hayes Code kind of says that they had to, really. Yeah. You're right. Like, it's like you had to be fake, right? You could be Frank Sinatra and you could be brought up on charges for seduction, but you better act real squeaky clean on the on the actual picture. Right. And related to that, it also called for depictions of, quote unquote, correct standards of life. Oh, my God, Mike, yeah. that's so hard. How do you do that? And it forbade a movie from showing any sort of ridicule towards the law or, quote unquote, creating sympathy for its violation. OK, OK, so you can't love a scoff law. We can't. That, that scoff law has got to be the bad guy, right? You can't glamorize crime. Can't make it a, a romantic story because very much related to this was the idea of people will see this on screen and it will not only resonate with them maybe as a good story, but it will encourage them to echo or mimic that behavior. That was the fear here. I have to ask you a question about that because that is something that I always wonder about entertainment. Doesn't it seem like entertainment of yesteryear, the audience seemed very innocent. You know, the idea of the train rushing at the screen and people running out of the theater because they thought the train was going to come right through the screen. The jokes, the things that they played and the things that people laughed at. I always am like, were people that simple? Like, were they really going to imitate things that they saw on the screen? Is that a true thing? And I mean, gosh, now we have leadership saying... These people are that innocent. They honestly are going to. Is that real or is that just like my perception from like hindsight? Let, let me give you a list of the it was 11 things that were don'ts. Uh, listen to these 11 and the fact that these were actual I'm, I'm reading from the code I think sheds light on the innocence of the country or at least the protections that were trying to be afforded to the sensibilities of the country. OK, OK. You could not have any kind of profanity. That includes either typed out in the silent movie era or spoken. Includes you can't say God, Lord, Jesus, or Christ unless you were talking about it in connection to a religious ceremony. You could not say hell, damn, God, G-A-W-D, or any other profane or vulgar expression, however it is spelled. Oh, okay. Tight. That became an issue with, uh, frankly, Scarlet. I don't give a damn. That became a contested line that was initially being told to be cut from that film. Mm, I believe it. Okay, what's next? You cannot have any kind of suggestive nudity, in fact or in silhouette, or any lecherous or licentious notice thereof by characters in the picture. So you couldn't go like behind a silk screen and have a woman seductively take off her camisole and show like a nipple poking. Oh my God. <laughs> okay, that's very specific. Yeah, also probably a glimpse into my private life. Mike's like, what's something that would be suggestive? Oh, I know. So picture it, a Chinese screen, a large-breasted woman. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. What's Tell me three? more. Or, okay, no, wait, like, wait, wait, speak wait, more slowly. Are we still recording this? <laughs> stay focused, Caputo. You cannot show the illegal traffic in drugs. Okay, okay. And, here, and here's the one, we're getting into a couple now that affect Ace's concerns. Speak to why it was important to talk about this because it relates to Dick's response. You cannot have any inference of sex perversion. Which includes interracial marriage or interracial relationships, right? That has its own category, Caroline. Holy cow. Okay, go ahead. All right, so sex perversion would be homosexual acts. Oh, okay. Or any kind of sodomy, the way the law would define it. So number five on this list was white slavery. You could depict slavery, couldn't depict white slavery. Okay. Here's the one where we get into trouble. It's a very fancy word. It's a big SAT word. Miscegenation. 
It is the sexual relationship between races. Oh, so that's our interracial relationships. Right. Essentially, it is showing the mixing of different racial groups through marriage, cohabitation, sexual relations, or procreation. Hmm. Okay. Yes. Uh, on top of the fact that you couldn't really depict nudity in any way, definitely could not have black and white characters or, or any other kind of race interacting with each other in a romantic, sexual, or intimate setting. And, and that's that was Dickie Samuels' response here. You know, Archie's behind the camera. He's not even a character on the screen. There is no miscegenation here. There is no sexual perversion in Peg. Sex hygiene and venereal diseases. Scenes of actual childbirth, in fact, or in silhouette as long as it's not shown on screen. Children's sex organs. Well, that's o that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, th I think we all are on board with that. You couldn't ridicule the clergy, and you could also not give willful offense to any nation, race, or creed. Those were the 11s cannot do. Okay, so that actually seems kind of okay. Like, so you can't show racism? Uh, well, yeah, I guess. How, that's kind of a hard one, right? I think we'd probably have to see how that was carried out in practice, but to me... That sounds like you couldn't you couldn't say like disparage a group, right? Right, but you know, if you were trying to make a a film about the Spanish American War, you couldn't, I guess, make a film where you would disparage the Spanish in that movie. See, that's really hard to believe because I mean, in this example here, they're talking about making Tippy Canoe and how they're gonna like slaughter all the Native Americans in the film. How is that not fall under this willful? offense of a race creed or country like doesn't that seem like that would fall right under that why do i mention this why am i picking apart this particular one because i feel like there's parts of this code that seem like they were on the up and up and probably actually did some okay things i was reading a new yorker article about how this censorship which we always think of or at least i do as a very negative connotation any kind of censorship is super bad in my mind however when i was reading through the article and it pointed out that Previous to this code, women were, were primarily just treated as objects. They were just literally tits on the screen. So you, like Mae West, would just be like in a bubble bath. That's it. Like she has no qualities that actually add to the film in terms of the plot. So creating the censorship forced studios' hands to create a plot and make specifically women be a part of the plot. If you're going to have them in this, you can't just have them behind the silk screen. So there's parts of this, gosh, the children's genitalia. Yes, please keep that out. I'm not interested. Don't do that. So there's parts of this that I can see had really good intent. And you can certainly see the heavy hand of the church in here. It was a layman and a Catholic priest who were the proponents of the initial list that Hollywood took, reworked, and then uh, put into place. Presented in 1930, and it was being strictly enforced by 1934. And it remained in effect until uh, the late 60s when the Motion Picture Association removed the Hayes Code and in instead placed age restrictions on films, which we still have today. We have, you know, rated you know, PG-13, PG-G movies. It was a slightly different system then. Uh, and what the what was included and has gone through several evolutions, but for over 30 years. And, and think how different the country is from 1934 through 1968. Oh my gosh, that, that seems like light years, doesn't it? I mean, like, it's really only a couple of decades, but in all honesty, I mean, that is so much, you know, going from just after flappers to hippies. I think it's interesting when you think about the depiction of women and, and races and the the especially the 50s the very idyllic version and image that we have of america how much of that was really engendered because of things like the hayes code yeah that 
you know, we, we've talked about life really, was life really like it was in the Cleaver's household in like Leave it to Beaver? Or was that just a varnish that was presented as what life was like? And so people who were not living that life felt like outcasts or like they were freaks who didn't belong because that's not what the images that everyone was seeing. That's a really good point because I know one of the, the ideas behind this was the concern that people were going to imitate this in their personal lives. If they saw it on the screen, somehow it would give them the permission to live their lives in a more scandalous way. So it seems like the Catholic Church specifically really wanted to have a hand in making sure, I'm gonna like lean into like propaganda here, wanted to make sure that they could try to shape the nation through entertainment, which is something that, you know, we all know that Hollywood and, and everything we watch does play into things. This is where I feel like I'm so interested as reviewers to continue to follow how the behind the scenes rules really shaped how different programming happened. Because even now I can tell you on television, I felt like I never saw anybody use drugs ever. I'm still surprised when I see them actually showing, like on Defending Jacob, I'm covering that one. They actually show a boy like using a bong and like from start to finish, which is something that I hadn't seen very much of. They will insinuate or they'll show someone kind of sort of using it, but but it wasn't like a step-by-step -step guide on how you use things. I couldn't glean from a TV show how I use heroin, but now I can. I could watch a TV show and figure out how to do it. I'm still surprised by that, which isn't that weird? Shouldn't like, isn't that like, oh, Caroline, what the hell? I think you're right. And I think a lot of how we think of ourselves and we think of this country are still shaped by movies and TV. Think how groundbreaking it was for NYPD Blue to show Sipowitz's butt. And this is like the mid 1990s. And we, which I think we think of as kind of an enlightened time. Not was it really late. enlightened? That that it was such a, 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 a revelatory thing that we saw a male ass on, on TV. I mean, think about how Ellen basically lost her career, you know, and had to rebuild it after coming out on TV and what a huge deal that was. I mean, that's our number four, you know, that really only happened because we created a image of, of that's not what we do in America. That's not what's happening here through rules like this. Think back to when you were a kid watching old TV shows, even in the Flintstones or the Honeymooners or or uh, I Love Lucy when she was pregnant. You remember when we used to, we would ask our parents, why are they sleeping in separate beds? That's right. weird. Right. Like, that's an odd thing. They're a married couple and they sleep in separate twin beds. That's weird. Well, it's because the Hades Code. It's things like that that was shaping the morals. You know, if you showed a married couple in bed, you were somehow contributing to the corruption of this country. Well, it implied that you had sex. It implied that you touched each other in the night. So the Hays Code required that women in love scenes at all times had at least one foot on the floor. You couldn't show love scenes in bed where both feet were up on the floor. Couples couldn't be in a horizontal position if they were kissing. That was... Not okay. That's crazy. <laughs> but in those in those ways, I can kind of see the the time frame of this when you still heard. I mean, I've heard that. I've heard two feet on the floor. I was actually joking about that just the other day about the concept of two feet on the floor. I was teasing the dog about that because she jumped on the bed and I was like, oh, two feet on the floor. <laughs> but so it's there's carryover here. Isn't that funny that that's like it's like woven yeah. into our normal lives. And, you know, think of like uh, the movie scenes where like the girl kisses the guy and she raises the one foot up behind her, you know, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. just I'm sure that kind of relates into being so swept off your feet 
you know, but you still have to keep that one foot on the floor, even though you raise your one leg. Intrigue. And that actually, like, in my brain, like, comes across as, like, romantic. But you're right. Like, that, you're right. Because that was as much depiction of romance as you could show. Right. And and they're always standing up when they're doing that kiss, too. Um, right. So I mentioned the Flintstones and the separate beds, which just always struck me as an odd thing. But there was an actual, like, real animated fallout from the Hayes Code. So Betty Boop, who has, like, a real fun-time gal thing about her, she had to be cleaned up. Her image had to be, quote-unquote, cleaned up due to the rules of the Hayes Code. Her skirts were lengthened. Her Mm -hmm. garter belt was replaced with a leg-covering stockings. And the necklines of her dress were raised so as not to cause offense. That makes sense because so, I can think of two versions of Betty Boop. I can think of that little teeny tiny black dress and I can think of her long gown that she then wore with a slit, but it wasn't short like the black dress. So interesting why that changed. So uh, some of her curls and her uh, winks and shaking hips, they were deemed to be too suggestive of immorality. The idea that she had to be more demure took hold. And so you can find pictures online, like you just said, you can find pictures side by side of pre-Hays Code and post-Hays Code depictions of Betty Boop. And again, cartoon. Now, I know there is a subset fetishist out there that like their cartoon porn. God, just, I mean, you can blow your mind doing some Smurfette porn. Oh uh, my God. All right. We don't need to advertise that. Hays Code, Hays Code. But, uh, (laughs) but yeah. So, I mean, this is, it's kind of crazy when you think about it now. Could you imagine what Kathy uh, ack would have looked like in a in a pre haze code kind of world. Oh so. my god, that's hysterical! Her turtlenecks. For me, the deep dive into the haze code was the most interesting part of this episode, and I I spent a lot of time reading about it. I'm only I'm only giving you a snippet of it, but uh, just the last thing I would want to say because I mentioned it before: the Gone with the Wind, right? The way the reason they got, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn because Hayes and Carl Breen, who was the one who was in charge of enforcing. The, the these this code they convinced uh david oselznick convinced hayes and breen to allow the line even though it has damn in it is because it came from margaret mitchell's uh, novel it was a line from the novel and therefore it did not prejudice public morals or otherwise corrupt public morals because it was a quote not something they were creating for the screen interesting okay that, that i mean that's one of the most famous lines in a movie and it, it was hard fought to have its in, its inclusion. I think it's fascinating. And I think it's really important for, for those of us who are trying to understand how entertainment came to be. And I, I've talked about this a lot in this one about how people do learn from their entertainment, you know, the infotainment world here. It's really smart, I guess, clever insightful for some of these people back in the 30s to be like, hey, hang on a second. If you see it up there, I think you're going to actually learn from this in some way. Now, some of this stuff, I mean, like the childbirth stuff, I mean, or sex hygiene, I'm kind of like rolling my eyes, like, like, God forbid you learn how to like wash your private parts. But then also I'm like, I don't know that I need to see that in a movie either. Like, I don't know. Like, okay. I don't know where you're going in that plot exactly, but okay. But it's, it is interesting how things you can see easily the cause and effect, you know, people not understanding how sex works, people, you know, STDs running rampant, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, yeah, you can, because if that's where people are getting their information and you specifically cut that stuff out, if if people at home aren't talking about where you're supposed to get information, there is no internet. Because it's easy to talk about this and say that this did influence Hollywood in TV and motion pictures, but there were actual penalties. And like I had mentioned, so by 1934, it was actually being strictly enforced. 
And so studios that were found to have violated the Hays Code, they faced a $25,000 fine for the violation. And also they were prohibited from profiting from that movie while it was in theaters because the Motion Picture Distributors of America organization, because it was a, a group made up of the studios, then the studios owned all of the movie theaters. They were able to block the profit from those violations, those movies that had those violations in them, while the edit continued with the violation in there. And $25,000 sounds like a lot of money to me, even in today's standards, but take a guess, Caroline, at how much $25,000 in 1934 adjusted for inflation. Take a guess at what that is about today. I feel like it's in the millions, but I don't really know. It's not that much, but it, it's a it's about just over four hundred and seventy eight thousand dollars. That's still a huge slap. I mean, you know, I understand that some movies make millions and millions, but lots don't, and that's it. That's a huge slap. I can see again going back to Ace's motivation. This is important to understand the Hays Code and important to understand these types of huge penalties because it's so easy to look at Ace and be like, you're an asshole. You are so shitty. You're just trying to be mean to Archie. And within the show, you could just think that. But hopefully podcasts like this give you an opportunity to say, hold up a second. There is like a, a bit of truth to what he's saying. And it is important that, you know, for the viability of the studio, they don't get penalties like this. Well, I 100% agree. But that being said, Archie, as a writer of this movie, doesn't seem to actually break any of the rules of the Hayes Code. He doesn't. I, I agree. I think his larger point that holds more water from a pragmatic business standpoint is that there has never been a credited head writer that was a, to use his words, colored person in Hollywood. And he wasn't in the business of making A Studios a progressive place for them to be the first ones that make that happen. That is a more supportable business decision point of view than than maybe citing the Hayes Code here because it really doesn't seem to fall into it, which Dick Samuel says to him. There is no Hayes Code violation with Archie. It, it seems like you're going to run into more of a Hayes Code problem with Camille uh, being a black actress uh, against Jack or Rock, uh, whoever ends up getting the role. That seems like that's going to be more of an issue for Peg than having Archie as the writer right. of the movie. Completely agree. And also, I mean, I'm going to come back to the to the pros cons part of it. Uh, having this code in place did allow actresses like Hepburn to come forward and actually have more of like that kind of like biting kind of like sass and having to walk that line of being a little bit more uh, funny than just being like a sex object. And I feel like there's something to be said for that. Being able to take the sexuality out of things also left room for more like romance, for more of those moments that we love on screen, that that look, that wink, that, that little something that that feels a little forbidden and it was forbidden to go further than that, but it like created romance. It created the like innuendos and those things that God, for most of us, are the most titillating part of, of shows and of life. It's interesting when you, when you think about Ace though, ju just the, the, who he is as a man, like he, he sees a, a black actress and a black writer in a room and he runs literally, I mean, as much as, Ace, uh, Ace Amberg runs back to Ellen and Dick and asks them why they're trying to bankrupt his studio. Think back moments before he's trying to leave on his sexcapade and he's talking about the first pitch film on their slate, Everybody Needs a Fella, where Gene Turney impersonates a nun uh, to, to get a man. And his his entire comments on Gene Turney as an actress and, and her abilities is that she's got a great ass on her. Now, she did, and she was very attractive, 
but you're talking about the Hayes Code and sexual perversion and like your entire commentary on her as an actress is what an ass, you know? Yes. So. Well, it turns out, though, that that leads right into our next conversation about Ace and things going on behind the scenes, because I thought this was super interesting that we have both Ace and Avis revealed as having affairs, putting them parallel to one another in how they handle their affairs. What did you think about Ace and his Palm Springs secretary conversation and all of the subterfuge that went on with Ace's behavior? I think he's a gross person calling me on the double standard here because I'm not going to hold Avis as accountable for her affair as I'm holding Ace for his. Our first sighting of him from last week was him getting a blowjob while his family waited for him at the dinner table. That's disgusting. The, the Harvey Weinstein-ness of him, as Gene Crandall tells Avis later, is I convinced myself I loved him because of what he would say to me. But after a while, I realized that was a fantasy. Ten years this went on. She ended up staying because she was afraid for her career. And Ace Amberg strikes me as the exact kind of person who would either fuck me or you're fired, an actress. I think Ace is very timely in a post-Me Too world for the exact kind of outrage that we need to have in Hollywood for the, you know, p the pay to play fuck system that disgusting studio heads engaged in uh, for so long. And, and, you know, hopefully not anymore, but I'm sure still going on today. Oh, I'm sure it totally is. I was interested in the, the concept of comparing Avis and how she pulled up to a public place. A man got into her car publicly she walked through a hotel publicly, you know, had him on her arm up to a public hotel versus Ace, secretary covering your ass, having a planned lie to the spouse, going to a secret hacienda, 10 years, same person, all that kind of stuff. Comparing those, Avis certainly does not come off squeaky clean. And in fact, I have a lot of eyebrows for her that before it was sort of like, well, I'm having an affair at the gas station because my husband sleeps around. And then to have that twist of like him through Jean's confession saying to her, well, I'm having an affair because you're sleeping with some gas station man. Okay. Who was more sort of being, or maybe there's not a more, maybe they're both so wrong. It's not even funny, but is there anything to be said for discretion and this Avis' ways, you know, raise your eyebrow. From her conversations with Jack, where he, he asked her kind of this exact question of, aren't you worried about being seen? And she says to him, you know, that's part of the fun is the, the danger of it. I always took that line, meaning that she didn't care if she got caught slash wanted maybe Ace to know for him to be on notice that she wasn't sitting at home weeping for him being away. Who knows? A a Avis is not the head of a major studio. She is the wife of the guy who's the head of a major studio. Ace is boning actresses that work for him. That's disgusting. He is using his staff to arrange these tete-a-tete -tete with, with a gross amount of uh, roses. He's, you know, he is giving Gene the vacation, you know, and the love treatment that he probably hasn't given Avis in a very long time. I, I don't think they're equivalent. I, I agree with your point about discretion. It is an interesting thing that Avis doesn't do it. But as a scorned wife, with all the baggage that she has from her exploded Hollywood career to then having to become simply nothing more than the wife of a, of a powerful man who cheats with his actresses that, that he employs, I am more much more sympathetic to her plight than to Ace. 
Ace is just a gross guy who he could never get Jean Crandall in a million years unless he paid her salary. Okay. And I'm saying that Avis could never get Jack in a million years without paying Ernie. I don't know. I don't know. Think back think back to think back to the moves that she puts on Jack in that room. Jack, who was not into this thing at all, eventually gets down to business in an enthusiastic way. I thought you were not into women manipulating through conversation that situation. You just slammed Camille last week on that biz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Camille was trying to get something from her boyfriend and, and fucked him because of it. I'm talking about attractiveness. I am not convinced that Avis, as we saw her in that hotel room, she could get a man if she if she was so inclined. I said I don't think she could get Jack. She could get a man, absolutely. She and maybe even Ernie, which is probably the original, you know, the original right. lay, if you will. Right. Well, I mean, that's definitely who Gene Crandall is citing, the guy who owns the gas station. For sure, um, absolutely. I'm I'm going to come down to I did did you get that he was sleeping with multiple actresses or had been sleeping with Gene for ten years? I, I, I don't think they say explicitly, but I would bet literally every dollar I have ever owned oh my God. if he if he didn't have more than one. So I so I I leave it up to our listeners. I really want to know: is there a comparison to be made here, or do you guys feel like you know what an affair is an affair, and whether you pick up some guy you never met before or you you know have a ten year relationship with someone, both are wrong, both are gross. Whatever you think, I really want to know. So definitely let us know what you are thinking, because now we've got to get into the aftermath, Mike. What did you think about Ace, doggy style, going down? Shocked? Not shocked. Not shocked. I mean, the, the guy eats nothing but pure, like, pastrami and rye sandwiches, and, you know, that's basically just fat. If you can't go gently into your sleep, fucking a hot actress is probably one of the ways that would be, you know optional give it given it good doggy style i i thought the look on her face the uh it was almost bemused as she was getting it was just a real fun thing because he was he was doing the lord's work if you look at his face he was really <laughs> he was he thought he was really bringing it home and she just looked like she could have been doing a crossword puzzle so i thought that was pretty funny i love their back and forth though they're a little like you know you're not a spring chicken and she like playfully slaps him as like does that make you my big cock like i thought that that was really funny and like Again, felt like people who had been together for a long time. That's why I didn't feel that fling sense, that sense of just like bullshit. Like when he came in and, you know, she was like, how's work? And she's like, you know, there was a conversation there. There was more there, more substance there than just he sleeps around with all the actresses and he's Harvey. I don't think Harvey had those times, you know, at least that's not the way that it's been described to all of us. Yeah, <laughs> maybe you think I, it's bullshit, and maybe it's like you know, you know. I think it's I think it's super disgusting. Not shit out of pepper. I'm sure. I'm sure. Because I find her confession to Avis completely sincere, and I think I think you have to view that entire interaction with the you know oh, my big cock and all that stuff through the lens of an actress who is just performing so she can keep her job. Like this guy goes from boning her giving it doggy style to like signing her paycheck. Yeah. That's disgusting. No, you're totally right on that front. And of course the authority figure nature of it all is of course like a whole nother level. So I give you that. I just, I don't want to let Avis off just because she's Patty Lapone. you know, like I'm not letting her off the hook. I'm still saying. No, no, like, I think, well, cool, listen, I, I am, I am anti-infidelity. I think, I think they're both wrong. I think if there are levels in Gray's area too wrong, I think he is more wrong. Okay, that's fair. 
you know, if, if he found a female run gas station and that was who he was sleeping around with, I think they would be on equal levels. If he was sleeping exclusively with actresses employed by MGM or Warner Brothers, I think that would be different. But he is boning one of his own actresses. Let's get into that conversation between Jean and Avis, because that was definitely a Hollywood rewrite as far as I'm concerned as a woman. I felt like Avis being so understanding, listening to that situation, recognizing her role in it, and choosing the high road just did not feel like how it would go down. Did you think that this was a big ting, ting, tingle, 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 tingle moment? And what did you think about having the balls on Jean to come and just say, you know what? I'm not going to wait for someone else to tell you I was the person in the room with her. I, I mean, I have in my notes here, Oz moment with the underlines, which is how I denote these things now when we watch these episodes, for sure. It, her coming forward to confess to it and Avis's response to it, the... You're, you're not going to quit. I won't let you because if I did, that would make me a hypocrite, which and essentially confessing her own affair. I mean, that that's what she was being a hypocrite about. And I think Jean understood that, yes. um, which is a huge confession for Avis to make because she is now given Jean solid ammunition against her. Mm. You know, it's it's one thing to be suspected of something. It's another thing to confirm it. Okay, so I'm going to pause you for just a second, and I'm going to circle back to this in just a moment. Ace being incapacitated and go and being in the hospital was a situation that I did not foresee. I thought he was going to die straight out. I didn't think that we were going to go to the hospital and have this whole lengthy, you know, uh, sort of in-between. With the lawyer coming in, which I thought was a great comical moment when Avis is like, how did I never meet you? And the and the lawyer just so smoothly goes, well, we've met, well, we met now. <laughs> I was like, smooth, dude, smooth. Is that a lawyer line? Do they teach you that in law school? Oh, yeah. We, had, we take a whole class on that in our third Like year. when the wife is shocked, you just be like, well, this is how it is now. <laughs> I mean, there, uh, Jesus Christ, there's always a lawyer. I, the fact that the guy's name is Lon Silver, I it is know. the most Hollywood name. I would, I would give... I would give a lot of things to have a cool name like Lon Silver and work in Hollywood. <laughs> it's too good. Okay, so in that moment, however, he divvies up the different responsibilities and I'm kind of kind of call it privileges in some way that each person has. So the lawyer is going to retain all health decisions. Super intriguing. I thought that was really interesting because my reaction to to Lon was exactly what Avis's was. I think you got that backwards. I think it's super interesting that he would rather leave the business decisions to her while he's incapacitated uh, versus making his health decisions. What's your actual like analysis of that? What the heck? I, I think he is much more concerned about her solving his medical issues with a pillow while he sleeps. <laughs> She's like, pull the plug, <laughs> decision made. Right, because when you when you listen to Lon's reasoning well which i guess vis-a-vis -vis is ace's reasoning for the decision is his incapacitation is a temporary thing so putting her in charge of the business decisions with keeping dick from running the studio and putting her in his place is a temporary hold which doesn't give the company away to someone not named amber life decisions could have a very final effect if Avis is making them from Ace's point of view. And I guess, you know, says a, something a, about what kind of a woman scorned, right? Like, he, like right. knowing if he's incapacitated, this may have happened during a, a sexy time. You know, if she's scorned, right. then, you know, again, plug pulled. It says a lot again about Ace's pragmatism as a as a business person in the real world, not into the not in the Oz world. Ace is still very much a fixture of the real world that that we all live in and he knows what he's done he knows 
what kind of husband he has been. And I think this decision is a reflection of him acknowledging that. He doesn't want to trust her to make those decisions because he's not sure what those decisions would be. However, I will say that trusting her to make decisions for the company, they clearly had a same page idea on a lot of things because he did trust that giving her the green light button, she would maintain and pay attention to the rules and keep some level of standards that would be probably pretty reflective of Ace versus handing that button to Dick. Now, I understand the, the perception of the changing of the guards, but there was also that part of like, I can't just open the stable door. Avis will maintain decisions that I made and, and has the same kind of ideas as I do in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, I think it was more financially motivated that Avis is as financially motivated to not sink the studio as Aces because she is as financially dependent on the studio's success as Aces and maybe even more so because presumably as a wife doesn't have side prospects or income. The income she has flows directly from Ace from the studio. I, I think that is a very smart decision. But also interesting, though, that Dick is also still remaining in his day-to-day -day role as the guy running the studio. She just gets the purse strings and the 10,000-foot view oversight. I think that that was smart as well, because the day-to-day the -day operations do need to be handled. And, you know, he, he's at least aware. And Avis says, like, I don't know a thing about, you know, running the studio. Do you feel like Dick was in the right to be pretty disgusted that he was going to have to do all the work and not actually get to level up? I think Dick before his Oz, Oz transformation and Dick now is a very different Richard Samuels. But either way, he has to have a sense of it'll be my time when Ace is no longer there, presumably through Ace retiring or dying at some kind of older age when there actually has to be a a succession plan. I mean, every big business goes through the succession plan. It, it always makes for good fiction and great and great memoirs and reading the succession plan of major companies. And Dick Samuels definitely sees himself as the heir apparent because he's already doing the job. He's already keeping Ace student because he knows he has to make those idiotic pictures. But maybe Ace also acknowledges that he is a little too progressive for Ace's tastes. You're exactly right. I completely agree that this was a, it was a very balanced decision, I think, that Ace actually made in, in who does what in the scenario. It might have been shocking to hear, but when you step back, you're like, you know what? He actually probably did the right thing here. Circling back over, over to Avis, having this newfound power in the studio does attract flies, if you will. So the fact that she has the power and her indiscretion has created like the perfect storm that Henry with her, with his tattletale magazine can now come along and start blackmailing her. Do you feel like her decisions were uh, poorly made now in the discretion department? And, or do you feel like there was any conscious thought about the fact that Avis is very exposed. She does not have that sort of like, I'm a man, fuck off Henry kind of feel to her. She Henry didn't have any problem sitting down with her. I would love a scene with Ace and Henry, actually. I kind of want to see Ace pound him like a like a bug, you know? Uh, one, I, I thought it was fun. Uh, just another Learn Lingo kind of moment. Tattletale magazine was a real pulp magazine uh, that did frequently feature risque photos of the times. And it, and it was a pulp magazine that ran in the 30s. You can go online and find covers of uh, various magazine covers from the 30s and the 40s, I think. Uh, if you go to Etsy or Pinterest, they're there. You can definitely see where they were a little scandalous for the time. But to your point, 
I, I think she definitely has exposure, but I would be shocked if Henry didn't also have something on Ace and on every other studio head in town because Henry is Henry and you don't get to be Henry Wilson, mega star agent, most powerful man in Hollywood or one of the most powerful men in Hollywood without having dirt on other people. I agree completely. I think that Avis having to step into those shoes when she doesn't have that same level of CEO power protection that those men had created a, a void for Henry to actually exploit. Find that like interesting as we move forward, what's going to happen with that storyline. I think it was great that they did that. Just another quick little tidbit in the learn a lingo section. When Jean confesses her affair to Avis and Avis says, where are you going to go next? When she says she's going to resign, she tells her she's going to go work for uh, the craft television theater because they've shown interest in her. That was actually a real show. It was an anthology drama series that ran from 1947 to 1958, which I think also kind of plots this timeline, right? Because that show existed and didn't exist until 1947. Mm -hmm. So I think that's an interesting thing for dating purposes. But I only bring it up because Craft Television Theater broadcasted from Studio 8H at 30 Rockefeller Plaza, which we know today as being the studio that Saturday Night Live has broadcast from since its creation in 1975. That's so amazing. I love the history there. Isn't that cool? Yes, it is, Caroline. It's amazing. Thank you for that comment. Sorry, I was talking. I was on mute. Oh, no. I, I, I love those kind of tidbits. For me, those really make the episode like sing because I love being able to look stuff up and, and make those kind of connections. The big shocker for me of this ace, you know, incapacitation was Claire's response. I felt like she, ooh, we had talked about this in the last podcast about whether or not Ace and Avis had a good handle on their daughter and whether she was a spoiled brat and was going to handle things in a way that was going to be insufferable as it was described or if she was mature enough and and had the talent and they were just being jerks what did you think about that hallway scene where she's sobbing not over dad but about the fact that her screen test is Friday uh, I didn't think anything of it I, for, for, if I'm Claire, based on the small glimpse of family life that we've seen they have, that would probably be my main concern also, because I'll call your attention to the fact that she reacts that way and Avis calls her out for it and, and says, you know, essentially intimates that, that she's a bad person because that's her main concern. But Avis's first reaction is that no one can ever find out about this because of my reputation and the studio's reputation. Like, so Avis, maybe not throw stones while you're standing in your glass house. Uh, but again, Ace is a piece of shit. He's presumably a bad father and husband. So neither of these reactions really bothered me. They seemed pretty on point for what we know of these people and this family. This is not a healthy family with healthy relationships. I'll give you that. I do agree with you that Avis certainly had similar responses. I mean, she wasn't sitting there, you know, like, oh my God, you know, she wasn't crying or anything. She was like, what, did the pastrami sandwich go straight to his heart? Like, I mean, she wasn't exactly being <laughs> in any way the deathbed conversation that she was expecting Claire to have. I just thought that Claire, I don't know. I mean, it's your dad. I just kind of thought it would be a little different. So it surprised me. If your father has never been anything more to you than a here, take some money and go away and leave me alone. Why would your reaction be anything more than how does this affect my career? Family is not about blood, despite what people say. Family is about, about relationships. And if you're treated nothing more than a stranger, that if we didn't share blood, you'd probably try and have me on the casting couch. 
then why would you owe anything more than how does this affect my career? A super good perspective. I agree that you, you're, you're bringing a different perspective than I was. I mean, I'm bringing my relationships and my family and I'm feeling very like, wow, you know, that's a lot. And I do understand, I really do understand the concept of like, she, this is what she's thinking about. And you could even twist a little bit and say, well, maybe she is scared that this is going to throw her off her game and this is her big chance. And so she's just, it's sort of like a, a whole bunch of twisted thoughts in there you could give her more credit for that you know i i, I don't want to forget my lines because i'm so distraught about dad you know like you you could twist it you could make it more heartfelt <laughs> can we get into the screen test portion of all of this and talk about claire and camille jack and rock and all the different prep that they had to do to get ready well i think the entry before that though because it becomes extremely important in the episode is that the fallout from Ace's incapacitation is that he had instructed Dick to remove Archie from the picture, uh, that the film wouldn't be rewritten, but a, a new writer is going to be hired to, to take the credit for it. And that Archie gets to remain on set, but his name will not appear in that. And so he has that conversation with Archie. What was your take on, on Archie's response? He tells Dick, if Mr. Amberg wants to remove me from the picture, he can tell me himself, knowing that Ace can't tell anyone anything right this moment. The look on his face, there is a real galvanized look on his face um, as he's walking out of that office. This is not the same sweet Archie that walked into this office. That was my take on it. How, how did you take that whole scene? Which I think leads us into the screen test part. I saw what you were seeing. I saw the fact that he was listening at first. He had that transitionary comment of like, I'm sure you didn't want to be the one to have to tell me this. And then you saw that hardening, that shift to like, you know what? How about I let both of us off the hook and say, it's Ace's job to tell me. So, you know, let's proceed until Ace can tell me otherwise. I think it's clever. I think that it's smart and I, you know, I saw that jaw hardening that happened, him setting his jaw and feeling like, you know what, I'm going to fight this. And I loved the follow up on that of him showing up at Ray and Camille's home and having that same set jaw and apologizing to Camille and saying, I'm sorry that I fought you on this. I was fighting their fight and that's bullshit. I don't actually feel like I'm paying ent whistle. I, I was just telling a story that I thought they would buy this isn't my struggle this isn't my fight i'm not peg let's work together on this and him actually sitting down with camille and ray and working on the lines i love those little glasses he was wearing by the way they like made my heart be like you're so cute archie i love it i think he's gonna do something pretty wicked don't you if this was ray having this conversation with dick ray would have said you know when he says it's just the way it has to be it's just the world that we live in ray would have told him only because he would have repeated his conversation with Dick from the last, from the couple episodes ago, that it's only the world we live in because the world that you guys create and you can change that world. Archie doesn't have that poetic Oz moment here. He walks out of that office and he tells him nothing is in inevitable, Mr. Samuels, and he gives that double handed handshake. And he walks out of there and I wrote in my notes, murder plot? Like that is the look <laughs> on his face spoke murder plot to me because if Ace dies, then Ace can't tell him anything, which Dick seemed fine with. You know, he said, fair enough. So I think that's something we have to put a pin in. But remember, Archie, this is the second thing that's happened to Archie in this episode. The episode starts with Archie being told by Ray, his director, that he wants to rewrite the script to allow Ray's girlfriend, the actress, 
uh, be able to screen test for the for the role, which makes Archie concerned that it's going to be seen as a message picture and get limited distribution because you can't have a black head writer and a black lead actress in a film without it being sidelined and and greatly diminished where it shows. That came up. Ace brings it up, and Archer brings it up also. You have both of these things against the picture. It doesn't get shown in the South. It doesn't get shown in in rural racist parts of America. Like you are you are sinking the viability of this film out of the gate. I appreciated his his growth that he was able to see that for what it was though, and see that the conversations he was having with those people were not his fight, and that was it was not right to say those things to Ray or to Camille or anybody and him showing back up and having that total change of heart and being willing to to make the change because it was the right thing to do for himself and then in turn for Camille seemed like okay I understand where that growth would have come from you didn't just suddenly rewrite Hollywood I, I see how he actually made it from point A to point B. He also has the interaction with Jack where Jack asks him you know he plays the I'm alone card and asks Archie to, to to put a good word in for him while acknowledging his relationship with Rock and not wanting to fuck that up. And and Archie puts on like this like explosive emotional display of, of crying about you don't you don't have a fucking idea what it is to be alone uh in this world. So Archie's having a real time in this episode. I was a little put off by his this is not my story, this is the story that they want me to tell. Because one of the things that sells me on Archie in the episode, in the second episode, is when he tells Ray why he wrote the picture. And that he did want to tell Peg's story. He could have written any kind of story. And he, he identified with her outcast nature in Hollywood and how hard it was for her to find acceptance. That really resonated for me. And then he completely 180s on that in this episode. That put me off of Archie, I got to tell you, a little bit. I get why he's angry. I get being mad at the system. But I I did not like his repulsion of of why he wrote Peg. I understood it from the standpoint of it was a compromise between his actual struggle and what he thought the white industry would accept. I didn't take it that he was like completely dismissing the whole concept, but that it was a compromised packaged so that they will accept this kind of thing. And so he was done fighting that part and he was ready to say, let's do this. That is more authentic. And so, so I'm okay with that part of it, but I, I agree with you that there was moments that felt like, okay, we're just going to go with it. That this is, this was like an earned thing. I was more surprised by his, the level of his anger, the, the sinister nature that seemed like it was going to get physical suddenly. Right. Well, that's why I, I wrote murder see plot. that coming. Because uh, because that anger, you know, persists. I mean, he sits down and helps Camilla those lines, and that seems to soften him a bit. And again, I understand the anger, but it seemed almost like a like he had he had gone from like passive acceptance, uh, and he had transformed into like not just anger, but going to commit violence level of yeah, anger. Yeah, it was extreme. It, it was intense. It, it was a lot. It His was a lot. His look was really yeah. intense. I do want to say that I also felt like the that the gas station scene felt very dramatic having Jack talk about, well, I need to provide for my family and I have twins on the way. It, it felt redundant. Like we already know this. We already know why you're doing this. And Archie knows this too. Like we're, you guys have been hanging around each other for a long time. Everybody knows you don't want to do this, but you know, it felt like, why are we having this scene exactly? And it could have just been shorter. And I don't think having both of them break down in tears 
right. was necessary. I get the level of desperation. I think we all do, right? It seemed a little daytime soap opera on both their yes. parts. Yes, it was. It, it it was. It it almost felt like one of the screen tests that we have seen Rock and and Jack put on. You know, just real over the top kind of acting on both of their parts. You don't know my struggle. You don't know my struggle. You know, like just like. Guys, you, you guys are fucking gigolos at a gas station. No one knows your struggle. I mean, what the fuck? But the audience does. So you don't have to retread ground for us because we do. So so don't even bother with that. Let's go over back with Archie and Ray and Camille and, and Camille's prep for the scene because this is something that I think was interesting. The way that the anger coming from, from Ray and hollering at her that like you better give it your all in these rehearsals because if you can't do it now, you're not going to be able to do it on the screen. Did you feel like things were getting weird with those three like was camille not as good as we kind of thought she was going to be or was ray just being really hard or what no ray was being exactly what the director of a motion picture has to be camille was not good here i, I was extremely underwhelmed by her screen test lines here there was no passion there was no connection to the story here if ray did anything less he would have been doing her a disservice because this picture needs to work for 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 the revolution that they're trying to make Peg, or Meg now, I guess, if we're going to call it that, for it to be the revolutionary thing that they want it to be, Camille needs to be the best. She needs to be the best version that she can be. The same advice Archie gives Jack at, in that gas station scene at the end. You know, you have to be so good that they have no choice but to give it to Did you. Did you feel like it was like a dick move for Ray to be yelling at her, or, or no? Like she was being out of line? Well, as a boyfriend, I don't think it was cool. But as the director of the film, trying to position her for the best spot that she could be in going into a screen test for this movie where he does not have control over it. I mean, she seems to be losing sight of that. Like he has a say, but he doesn't have control over it. He's not the only one in that screen testing room. There's a bunch of other people that all outweigh him in the end. So he needs to position her to do the best screen test that she can. And if you can't cry in rehearsal, then you can't cry on the day of. Like, where is that Where is that connection going to come from? So as a boyfriend, not cool. But as on a professional level, I think he was totally, totally right here. I do think that it exposed their naivete about what it would be like to be in a relationship and work together. That there are lines there and that you can't call your director a dick and you have to accept criticism. Guess what? Ray and your director are one and the same if you get the part. So you best be able to walk that line and handle it you know, and not flip out at him. And you also may have picked the wrong person to fuck if that's the way you're going to go into your role too, mm. right? Because he is only one voice. This is not like last week where he, she's messing with him to get him to be willing to change the picture uh, so that she is eligible to screen test for it. He can do that level maybe, but again, I don't know that he's even screen, you know, run that past the powers that be that he works for. You know, a director is a powerful person, but director is not the most powerful person. Let's move over to Rock and Henry and talk about how they're prepping for the scene. I actually found that Henry was a lot kinder than I expected. And Rock was a lot worse than I expected. Uh, Rock was exactly uh, who I thought he was going to be. Just based on Rock's entire demeanor, I was not expecting him to be good. He was worse than I think I expected him to be. But Jack was also infinitely better than I expected him to be too. But I did think Henry was much kinder here. But again, kind of the same way, like it's hard to separate for me Ace's good moments from Ace's bad moments. It's hard to separate here for me Henry's good moments and Henry's bad moments. Every time he pats Rock on the knee, every time he, he talks about I'm as nervous as I was for Trent's first audition, 
those are moments that are should to endear you to Henry. But for me, all I can think of, he's just grooming him for some weird, weird sexual power thing that he's going to do to him in a little while. I can no longer see any kind of altruistic motives in him. I was surprised, though, and relieved when he was harsh a little bit about the concept of, like, your director is not your stepfather, it's not your mom, but he is your friend, and he is someone who wants to wants you to do well. That at least felt somewhat balanced <laughs> because all we ever get out of him is like you fucking hayseed you're just you're just a pile of crap like it was nice that there was something there but you're right it's all i mean don't i cannot be confused this is all grooming techniques but i i did i did feel a little bit surprised that there was actually any positivity or actual encouragement if you didn't know anything about henry i think he's exactly what you want someone to be in that moment for you, someone who's giving you, saying the right encouraging words to you, but you, I, you can't di divorce that from everything else he's done, or I can't anyway. Mm -hmm. And so it's all colored for me. It's all it's all ruined for me when it comes to Henry. That's very super fair. I wanted to go back to Camille's lines in that explosion with Henry with uh, Ray because this this really turned me off to her here. She goes, "You can't. I can't manufacture other people's emotions." She says that when she's talking about how she can't like cry on command. <laughs> that's what acting is Camille. i know that was the weirdest line i my eyes actually rolled like you might have heard the like the thump of my eyes rolling and then the call out ray out i'm passing right after that also it was just shitty like really turned off by camille in the scene and i didn't think she was very good so let's go over to claire and jack's prep did you feel like that the two of them did a good job with each other and claire like steering the ship a little bit there and trying to show what you know what jack needed to do i kind of feel like i see like an agent in the making in claire one, I think they have good chemistry together. She is very good with him. I think she helps bring out goodness in him acting-wise. And I also think she's a pretty good actress herself. I definitely see what you're talking about. She has a real Ellen Kincaid aspect about she her, does right? yeah she just knows the the tricks and tips which gets you know revealed a little bit with the camille and the vix vapor rub under the eyes she she understands the industry at a henry level and she's just very young claire you are a force to be reckoned with girl like you could go far and you're right she did a great screen test she could really be something more an executive level decision maker with the level of understanding she seems to have for sure. But also kind of sad and lonely, though, too, when she when she wants to do the kissing scene with him in her clumsy attempt to have Jack. Like, I didn't take that as like lascivious. I took that as just like a like an awkward one person trying to to manufacture a special moment with another person. And credit to Jack for resisting her. But also I felt kind of bad for her in that scene. Not that she necessarily even wanted to do it, but she felt like I think that's where you see her her feelings about her father and her family life were coming through was in that scene about practicing, you know, doing the kissing. I scene. think you're right. Rejection was like all over her face. And that definitely spells parent stuff. I adored the montage behind the scenes biz of getting ready for the screen test. I loved the facials, the fittings, the working out in the gym, the good looks, the, you know, the how they did the lipstick little tests and stuff. That was so cool. I love behind the scenes moments like that. It was it that is like the flavor of this show that I'm so here for. I 100% agree. I thought it was a delightful montage. Um and and also that I like that at the end, you know, Jack wishes uh, Rock luck and Rock calls him a class act. Like I like the camaraderie. I like when people aren't nasty to each other. Again, probably a kind of an Oz moment. The same way Claire gives Camille the vapor rub tip before she goes and does her screen test. Like, your rivals, for the first big break any of you 
have ever gotten. The same way I ha I was happy that Jack acknowledged to Archie at the gas station, we're friends, so if you could do me this favor, but also I acknowledge you're, you've got a relationship with Rock and I don't want to fuck that up. I love that. It's I don't know that that's real. I, that may be a total Oz moment, but I like those moments. Yeah, yeah. It's that Shit's Creek, how you wish the world would be feeling of like, I wish people talked and treated each other a little bit better. Let's get into our actual assessment of the screen test. And let's just start off with Claire. What did you think about Claire and the fact that she went ahead and threw it for Camille? I loved her screen test. I was so affected by it. Even when she goes flat at the end and like makes a mental note to stop trying really worked for me as the emotion of the scene that she was trying to play the emotion leading to her suicide you know it seems like it's the scene right before she goes and climbs the scene uh the hollywood sign i could see her in that role i could see her on the screen performing that same monologue interestingly it did not play as well to me when we saw it back later in the screen test room it felt much more awkward and much clumsier. I know I agree with you. When we, they were actually watching in the screen room, I think that they cut a lot of the parts that were the more heartfelt, really well done part. And so I could see where you'd have like a different vibe off of that. I do think that it's interesting. You're doing a podcast right now, producing for Pod Clubhouse with an actress. I was doing the edit for that and I was listening to the concept of acting with your face and how much more calm and small movements of your face can express things. And I picked that up in Claire. I felt like I had really learned a lot. What did you think about hers compared to Camille's? Camille did a thousand percent better job on her screen test than we saw the night before. It was interesting that Ray took his what maybe you could see as being a dick to the next level, it continued the next day where he sees the vapor up and prevents her from going and using it. He, in that she has to earn it on, on her own. Again, echoing what Archie tells Jack. If, if this is what you want to do, then you have to earn it honestly. You can't use a vapor rope. But that threw me so much. I would have done such a shitty job if I had my boyfriend walk up to me and be like, no, no, Camille. Like, be like, I, I'm that alone would, I mean, my, the hair went up on my arm. I was like, oh my God, that would throw my shit off so much. I think I could have manufactured a tear because of that shittiness between the two of us. I'd have been like, oh, quit it. Well, she does manufacture tears. I mean, she does connect emotionally to the lines when she's giving the screen test. Maybe Ray, knowing his girlfriend, knows that she needed that kind of emotional turmoil push to get her over the line. That being said, Ray was leaning forward in his seat when Claire was giving her screen test. He wasn't just watching. He was engaged in her screen test. We had been talking about Jack and Claire, right? Because she, she's been pursuing Jack since they've seen each other. But... Ray seemed very into what Claire was doing on screen during the screen. Interesting. Post. Do you think we we have any follow-up there? Are they going to end up being a couple? Mm, uh, nice. Know. We haven't watched ahead, people, so we really don't know. So if you have, don't tell us. We are really Shh, doing this one at a time. Don't tell us. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so then let's compare Jack and, and Rock because, man, oh man, was Rock painful for me. There are a lot of U's and I's in that script. When he says that to Henry, I was like, motherfucker, you are absolutely right. That is not written well, Archie. You did not write a great line there for the guys to, to say. It is very, very clumsy listening to it, even when it's performed correctly. So I totally feel rock on his, there are a lot of U's and I's, a lot of pronouns. 
but your job is to memorize lines. The same way you have to manufacture other people's emotions, because that's what acting is. Part of acting is you have to memorize the lines, Rock. Come on. I think that the, that as a podcaster, I feel like I've been in Jean's shoes in that I've been in a situation where someone is, is struggling, whomever I'm talking to, and they can't seem to find the words. And you're like, it's okay. You can do it, honey. You're all right. And I, like, I do that kind of thing. And then also that part where the worst thing when you're the Jean is please rock, don't be like, I'm so stupid. Oh, like making a big scene in between like fucking up is like a, please don't do that. Please just like take a pause and start again. Because that like fluster moment, I feel like would make me crazy on set. Was there anything about rock that you found redeeming? And what did you think about Henry's response? I was actually very impressed that Henry hung in there as long as he did. 67 takes, Caroline, for a screen test for a Three sentence screen test. 67 <laughs> takes. I couldn't. That's insane. I could not. That's insane. That being said, if I'm Rock, man, my heart probably breaks when he finally snaps and storms out, slams down the books and, sla and, and, and walks out. Because you get the line right, and then you say Jean's line oh also. Oh my god. That was like so one of these things. And Jean's voice of like, honey, that was my line. I was like, no. <laughs> I, got, I want to give Mira Sorvino and the character of Jean Crandall such a big hat tip for this whole scene because she seems like she is just enjoying the hell out of life during this whole screen test. She, she's, she, she's telling, she tells Rock, uh, I'm up on the Hollywood sign. You have to picture it. It's really high up. And then she's, she's doing like this, oh, oh, <laughs> kind of like having so much fun. Yeah. I don't know what it was like on set when they shot that that day, but I was utterly enjoying Gene Crandall's part of the screen test, which was not the point of this scene at all, but I was very into her take on on Peg. As much so. as I could see Claire falling into more of a an agent type role or an executive role even, I could see Gene moving over into like a coaching kind of role because she was she was handling him with such kid gloves and was being so generous. It would have been so easy to be a bitch so easy to to blow him off and be like you're a, you're a joke you should go home you know and she was just being so kind i agree with you compare this to jack what did you think and how did you feel when you saw jack actually perform for us i think it was exactly what you want from your leading man i i think we saw a little bit of this after ellen gives him the acting note where she tells him to to use his eyes and we saw him improve in that scene afterwards I feel like he has had this evolution, which maybe not earned, because where is he getting all these acting improvements from? We don't see him taking classes. We don't see him doing a lot of anything acting-wise, but all of a sudden he's getting better from how bad he was Maybe originally. a testament to Claire. Maybe a testament to Claire. Maybe a testament yeah, to Claire maybe and good, Ellen. Maybe yeah. good tips from Claire. I'm, I, I will give her that. When we actually moved into the screening room and we had Avis and Ellen and Dick sitting there watching this, oh gosh, I mean, I felt like there was so much going on at the end of the day. I mean, Avis was having to weigh out the tattletale blackmail and dealing with, you know, the race issues and her own daughter is is a choice and the guy she's sleeping with and actually cares about. My God, she is so wrapped up into all of these people. Did it turn out the way you thought it would in that moment? It turned out the way I hoped it would uh, when it came to Rock and Jack, but not the way I thought it would because Henry doesn't, Henry and his blackmail threats doesn't seem like someone that you would ignore easily, but the look of pure joy on her face watching Jack's screen test absolutely warmed my heart. It was such a, speaking of acting, it was such good acting on Patty Lapone's part 
it, just using her face, it lit up. I, I, but you know, I'm also worried about her now. I don't know how she lives down, you know, or how she averts Henry's threat. Were you upset at her pragmatic take on why she had to cast Claire against her wanting to over Camille because of the business decision of it? So several things on that. One, I agree with you wholeheartedly that the the heartwarming moment of really seeing the ingenue Jack that she knew turn into an actor in front of her eyes was wonderful. Her response to Claire, though, was so ugly that I felt like, oh my God, because she felt like such a mama bear with Jack that it was like, oh my gosh, that's in you. You have the capacity to to feel good and feel like you're a part of someone's career building and here's your daughter right in front of you and you're just being such a jerk about her you're just saying she's going to be she's going to be insufferable you're going to not even be able to live with her she's going to be such a bitch you know if she gets this role and yet i have to give her this role because of camille i did think that that's how that was going to go down and i really loved how they resolved it what did you think about going to this luncheon? And have you been in the position of maybe sharing something with someone that you're like, oh, shit, they didn't think I made the right decision? It was an interesting follow-up with Avis because think back to the episode, episode two, at the end of it, Ellen and Avis run into Ray, Archie, and Jack entering the studio. And there are hellos and handshakes all around. Avis gives Archie, learning that he was the screenwriter of Peg, she gives him a look that I think we both interpreted as I'm not cool with black people. Trouble, trouble, trouble. So this was a nice bookend to that, which we hadn't otherwise seen come up at all. I mean, she acknowledged that Camille did a great job, but my hands are tied. What can I do? Question how much she really wanted to give Camille the role over the pragmatic business aspect of it, which is kind of what we were saying Ace was making, which is definitely how her decision is packaged here. But is it true? Or does she secretly have an issue because Camille is black? I think it's so complicated because you have to add in the element of she has no interest in her daughter being in the business. I mean, the only reason why they were allowing the screen test part is because she wanted Claire to be smacked down. She wanted her to have a little comeuppance and just quit talking about this. So you could see where there were so many elements. And I appreciated that they didn't just make it about race, that there was actually a lot of complicating factors in the decisions being made. I, th I think people who watch Ryan Murphy's shows don't really give him a lot of credit for nuance. I think they tend to think he's a little over the head with the hammer. Something that Hollywood has actually done really well is nuance. These are not black and white characters. Even your side characters are like Ace. Uh, I mean, God, we spent almost 30 minutes talking about him and, and uh, in this episode. All of these characters are multidimensional. None of them are easily predictable. And, and I think you're right. They, they, have, they have made Avis's position here nuanced and not you know obviously she's acting this way because of x or y i don't think it's that easily she made me laugh though and one of the best exit lines i've seen in a long time is when she storms out she sells dick you don't keep eleanor roosevelt waiting and she storms out to the eleanor roosevelt lunch made me laugh out loud. one of my very favorite lines that is in this episode is eleanor right at the beginning going these fucking shoes <laughs> <laughs> sister do i understand and she's like it's only one in jail and she's like i don't care these fucking shoes hurt like yes yes i told you in another podcast the best time of the night is when you slip those heels off and you're like sweet relief <laughs> so i love eleanor 
Were you surprised that Eleanor Roosevelt, I mean, we knew she was going to the lunchroom, but were you surprised that Eleanor Roosevelt actually inserts herself into the story? I was happy. Once I looked up Eleanor and I realized her actual past with the South and with her interest in real life interest in seeing Jim Crow laws be gone and, and the real life race wars that she wanted to make a change about, that made me feel great and made me feel like, yay, for not just using the real life people as background characters, but, but enlightening people. You know, it was an Oz moment for me for sure, but I liked it when she, she comes and she gives her impassioned plea and, and honestly doesn't move Avis immediately. I mean, that seems where it's going to go, right? Government may not be able to change the world, but you three can. And clearly Ellen and Dick are, are so flattered and so happy that she has shown up here. The, the former first lady has, has arrived here. But Avis, I mean, she's friends with Eleanor, so there's a little bit shine off the rose. It, it, she's not so intimidated by right. her and doesn't seem exactly sold on this again because of whatever the complicating factors are um, business wise or personal views wise on race, though. Being friends with Eleanor Roosevelt does maybe put a feather in Avis's cap that maybe she's not as racially biased as maybe we think she Absolutely. is. Absolutely. I agree with you. And one of the small things, like just the layers part of it, I love that they had Avis dressed in a black and white outfit. That was very like the pattern was very like, which do you choose? You know, shades of gray in a lot of ways. But at the end of the day, you have to make a choice that is quite literally black or white. But also, like, it's two sides of a coin. You can't you can't say, well, we kind of had black people working on this. No, you either did or you didn't, you know? And it's like, you have to firmly make a choice. So what are you going to do, right? The episode ends on this cliffhanger. But beforehand, did you catch the line, eg uh, Eleanor's exit line to Avis? She says she's going to go meet Hick for lunch. Did, did you catch I that did line? I did hear that. Hick is a reference to Lorena Alice Hick Hickok, uh, who was a uh, journalist who followed... FDR and Eleanor around for years on the campaign trail and actually lived in the White House for a period of time. Her and Eleanor were lovers. Uh, they were in a committed relationship for a period of Whoa. time. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and in fact, yeah, she lived in the White House uh, with Eleanor and I guess with Franklin uh, for a period of time, in addition to covering him closely uh, through, through his elections. Um, yeah, they had a they had a relationship that eventually fizzled out to their romantic relationship. But Hick and Eleanor remained lifelong friends. Yeah, I love that they throw that in there because that was you're right, subtle AF. I'm excited about the what are you gonna do? I really think that obviously we have to make a change, right? Because if it's a rewrite, I I, I think you, I think so. I mean, it, it would seem the show would be betraying its own conceit if it doesn't. But things to keep an eye on is, uh, again, Ace is not dead. Ace is only incapacitated. He remains a big question mark here, as does Archie in what he will do with Ace if Ace does show back up onto the scene. Remain big question marks. The what are you going to do cliffhanger, again, supports my idea that this show should be on, should be in a weekly broadcast. Because what a great cliffhanger to live on, leave on, and then only to find out an answer if you're going to wait 13 seconds for Netflix to start the next episode. <laughs> you're no. so right. I want the lead breathe. You're so right. 
Hey, you know what? I want to go to just one last line that I really loved of this episode, and we're going to close it on out. When Jack is going to go quit at Ernie's and he has suddenly, you know, had found his moral compass and Ernie goes, there's no prude like an old whore. And I was like, yes, don't you know that those who are reborn are the loudest proponents? And I just thought that was so good. And I thought class act to Ernie for giving him 50 bucks and saying, like, I knew you before they did and I said you'd be a star and good on him. A whole range of emotions from Ernie in the scene, right? From anger at being dropped, you know, not even a two-week notice at the gas station, through revealing his his hurt feelings about running lines with Vivian Lee and then not getting a call from Tennessee Williams for, for Streetcar Named Desire, to being resigned to Jack leaving and then giving him the money. It was a, it was a real, like, uh, a whole arc within just a couple of lines of television. I loved getting to see Ernie act. I loved getting to see that flashback with him living out the dream that was denied him because Hollywood is a cruel mistress. A lot of stuff going on there with Ernie. Also, that being said, a little weird that it was shoehorned in there. Unless it goes somewhere, it's a little weird that they shoehorned in a lot of that stuff. But I like Dylan, and so, you know, I want to see more of that stuff. Me too. This has been an awesome episode, Mike. I feel like we covered so much ground. I feel like I know so much more. I'm really looking forward to the next episode, as always. Uh, Same with me, and I just want to thank you guys all listening to Welcome to Dreamland, the Hollywood podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you. Pod Clubhouse.